a story about Leland Stanford University, which is near San Francisco. There was an arch that was built a long time ago. It used to be there. But something happened and it wasn't built back. This goes back when former California Governor Leland Stanford and his wife, Jane, lost their only child, Leland Jr., to typhoid in the year 1884. They decided to build the university because they believed that would be the most fitting memorial and decided, and excuse me, deeded it to a large fortune that included 8,180 acre Palo Alto Stark Farm that became the campus. Now, Memorial Arch was planned concurrently with Memorial Church and was erected at the entryway in memory of Leland Stanford Jr. And there it is. Like the church, Memorial Arch was symbolic of the power and influence of the university's founders and it was designed to be a focal point as you walked in. When it was first built, they marveled how big and impressive it was and Ray remarked that it would be there forever. But when the earthquake struck a few years ago in 1906, it lost its heavy stone cap, gapping seams extended down the sides of the arch all the way to the base, and falling fragments of the arch had broken down the adjoining arcades and crushed a portion of the assembly hall in building one Its massiveness was only superficial. Built of unreinforced brick faced with stone, the arch was a hollow shell containing stairways at either end leading up to an observation deck. Because the memorial arch was so massive and had been composed of unreinforced masonry, the work that would take to repair and protect it from future damage was extensive and required a complex new steel structural system. Now, the Commission of Engineers back in 1906 estimated that it would cost $131,000 to repair it, which in 2005 would be 2.7 mil, and today probably more like 3.5 mil to fix it. So they decided not to fix it uh, and just let it tear the rest of it down. And we have a picture of what it looks like today. There it is. Go to the picture of the day. And there... It's hard to imagine, but those two on either side is where the arch would go up from there and stand, but they never rebuilt it. And why did I tell you this story? It's because the arch was superficial. It wasn't built solid. The outside seemed like it was solid, but inside it was hollow and was unreinforced. In other words, its foundation was flawed to begin with. Now, likewise, so many people that we look at today... It may seem, well, they seem so successful. They seem to have it all together. They, everything they touch seems to, to turn to gold. And sometimes when we look at people like that, we put them on a pedestal, and then something happens. They suddenly collapse. Perhaps their secret sins are brought to life, or the foundation of what they built their life upon shatters. And I would say to you today, we've seen some of that in this year, 2020, already. The economy, people's jobs. So we have to go back and look at what the most important thing of life is. 
What is it that we're building our life upon? What truth do we cling to that will get us through these times? And I want to remind you that Christianity is not based on rules or regulations or policies of any man or woman. It is not a religion. Defining religion would be man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is relational at its core. Instead of man trying to reach God, Christianity says, no, we can never do that. It's God reaching down to man. Reaching down to women and children. I use the word man, I'm talking about all mankind. To reconcile man to himself. And that reconciliation that took place is built upon the firm foundation of His Son. Solid as a rock. Will not move. Will not waver. It's our anchor that we hold on to and the storms of life that will get us through. And by the way, when we refer to His Son, we call Him Jesus Christ. But Christ is not His last name. Literally, it should be Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. And as we look at our passage, Greek doesn't follow the same pattern or word pattern as English does. But here's the point I'm trying to make. In your English translations, most of them will start out, and although you. But in Greek, the first two words are and you. And here's the point. It's emphatic. To read that properly, you go, and you. So Paul is stressing the fact that they too are in the same condition of lost people that surrounded them. And we have to keep that in mind as well. This begins the section of what the central purpose of Christ's reconciliation work is all about. The reason, the goal of objective is to reconcile those who are once alienated. Those who were separated at odds in conflict with God to put them on a secure, strong, firm footing of faith and hope. Let's look in verse 21. Let's read the text together. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond Reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And although you were formerly alienated, that stands in sharp contrast of the next verse that starts, Yet he has now. The emphasis is a comparison between their pre-Christian past and now their present standing in Christ. Their past condition is mentioned first by recounting their own sin, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds or actions or behaviors. The gravity of their past condition serves to magnify the wonder of God's grace, His mercy, and forgiveness. Think about it. I deserve God's wrath and His judgment. Because of His grace and His reconciled work based upon His Son dying on the cross for me, I can now become a friend of God, a son of God, be part of the family of God. That's remarkable. That's outstanding. 
That's why we have hymns written. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wrench like me. I was once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind, but now I see. He's doing this for one reason, to draw their attention, our attention to God's mighty action. Reconciliation. Possible by the death of his son on their behalf. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. I think about that every day. Not only has God reconciled me to himself, but God has allowed me to be positioned to present his word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. How many times have I stood in the baptistry and baptism and I remember where God has brought me from? I'm not worthy to be there, but yet God in his infinite mercy and grace has led me to be here today. It's not I, it's all him. It's all him. It was up to me and Tim, I wouldn't be here today. But God's love and His mercy so compelled me to answer to Him. At one time, they were alienated. We were alienated outside the sphere of God's blessing. Continuously and persistently out of harmony with God and His people. Most of the Colossian Christians were Gentile. They were alienated from the hope of Israel. Israel looked for the hope of salvation through a Messiah. They had been the focus of God's redemptive plan from the beginning, His covenant people. But the Gentiles had no expectation of that. They did not know. They were strangers to the covenant promises. They didn't know, but now God, through Christ, brought them in. You ever seen pictures of the temple? When David built it, how magnificent it is. Only the high priest once a year could go in the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, once a year. Then you had the holy place. Well, only certain Levitical priests could get access to that. Then you had the whole courtyard that was mapped out for Jewish believers. Then you had the outside court. I, as a Gentile, would be way outside. It would be like watching the Rangers baseball game from um, Six Flags somewhere. I'd be in the vicinity, but I'd be so far away. But yet, because what God has done, not only has he brought me into the temple, but he's brought me right into his very presence, the holy of holies. And I can do that only because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Think about that. You have direct access to God. That's why it's so important that you and I pray for this election. Who do you think is letting this person be elected? We can have audience for the very one who's allowing this all to happen. And he says, come to me, pray to me, talk to me. Invites us in. He pulls us in. And the Colossians' response to all this, and the response we should have, is one of loving gratitude that you can read about. Here's a good verse, Hebrews 10, verse 23. Because of all this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, without moving, without drifting away. Because he who promised is faithful. Who's that? That's God. And I want to encourage you that as we continue on through this election at the end of the year, I don't know what the future may bring, but I know who holds the future in his hand. 
And he has promised that he will be faithful to me through it all. So I want to encourage you, hold fast, hold on. Is it going to get rough? Yes. Is it going to get difficult? Yes. But don't turn back now. Oh, dear brother and sister, hold on with all you can to that faith that you have in Christ. He tells them that they were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds or actions or behavior. That phrase hostile in mind can also be translated enemies in your mind. A conscious opposition or hostility to the only one true God. They're enemies of God because their mind and disposition was to do evil. We saw this last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among them too, we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, literally thoughts. And we're by nature children of wrath and of the mind. This kind of thinking results in one engaging in evil deeds, actions, and behavior. Or to put it this way, actions, deeds, works, whatever words you want to use to describe that, reveals the heart of the mitre, the mind, the character. My actions speak louder than my words. And that's no more true when life squeezes you. If I squeeze an orange juice, I mean, excuse me, excuse me. If I squeeze an orange, would I get tomato juice? No, Tim, that's ridiculous. You would get orange juice. If I was coming up here and squeeze a tomato, would I, what would I get? Tomato juice. So when life squeezes us, what's inside of us? Our hope. Oh, yes, we'll have concerns and maybe cry out and doubt from time to time. But when life really squeezes us, what we really hold true, our values, our convictions, will come to light. And I would tell you this morning, God allows certain crises, certain storms into our lives to refine our faith so that He knows that we are genuine. It's easy to praise God when things are going good. It's easy to praise God in here with fellow believers. It's one thing to do that in here, but another thing to do it out there. Where everything is going in opposition to what God teaches what He wants us to be. And as this year continues on, as we continue on in this journey together, life is going to squeeze us as individuals and as a church. How are we going to respond? That's why we always must go back to the basis of Christianity. What is the basis of our hope? What are we supposed to be doing here in the first place? Is it all about the building and the carpet and the ceiling? No. I mean... It's okay to think about those things, but the basic, the most fundamental thing is what this is all based upon. It has to be based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unconverted Gentiles had offended God by their wicked ways. Romans three, chapter, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter three, verse ten and eleven. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks. After God. God is the one who initiates our faith to begin with. The conviction of His Spirit. It is God's reconciling work on the cross of His Son that brings us to Him. It's all about Him and what He has done. And speaking about God, God as Creator, look at our society and our culture. 
Why is it that we just keep going down, down, down? And when you think we can't get any lower, we go any lower than that. Bear with me. There is a state that has passed a law that after a baby is born, they can kill it and lay it on the counter. That is now law in one of our states. That is a direct result, in my opinion, that instructing people that, in fact, there is no God, no Creator. Rather, they're just some product of some cosmic goo, a project of evolution. We have belittled, degraded, and devalued human life to a point it doesn't mean anything anymore. People wonder why self-esteem classes are encouraged and sometimes required. Human life, make this clear, needs to be protected from point of conception to natural death. The reason I say that, we're all not children of God. We become a child of God by coming to Christ, but we're all made in the image of God. And that cross tells me that human life has a value that we can never put a dollar amount on. Here comes the next part. And now that's all kind of dark. We're all we're alienated. We're enemies. But look what he says next. Yet he has now reconciled you. After a grim picture of their pagan pre-Christian life, the turning point is now revealed. God has acted mildly on their behalf, the basis for their reconciliation. The focus is not simply on what happened historically, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but what has happened in their life in real time. Christ in them. That He has taken up residence in them through the Holy Spirit. He says, in His fleshly body through death, both physical death and resurrection, moral and spiritual change comes because of the death of Christ. Blood represents life, and without blood there is no life. And in Hebrews 9.22 it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So I deserve that. In sin, I will die. The, the wages of sin is what? Death. But Jesus stepped in, took on human flesh, did not sin, laid His life down, paid the penalty for you and for me that I may have life that I may have forgiveness and mercy by shedding His own blood. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter race, ethnicity, social economic standing. At the foot of the cross, we're all on the same field. See in here, we call this a sanctuary. You ever wonder why? Because all the social division out there that the world puts on us in here doesn't mean anything. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ at the same place at the foot of the cross. All have equal access to God. Just because I'm a pastor or preacher doesn't mean I have more access to God or I have some special favor with God. The only thing about me is I have more responsibility to God because of the position in which He has placed me. I'll have to give an account for everything I say from this pulpit. But you have the same access. 
You can go to God anytime, anywhere, any situation. All you got to do is call out to him. And look at what he says. Why did he do all this? I'm going to start jumping up and down, so bear with me. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy. Having the characteristics of moral purity. Blameless, unblemished, physical from physical or moral defects. And beyond reproach. Not subject to or worthy of a charge of wrongdoing. I want you to picture that day when you stand before God. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, His shed blood covers your sin. And when God the Father looks at you, He sees someone who is holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Think about that. All because of Christ's work on the cross. Those who have been forgiven and reconciled are declared holy, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34 put it this way. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who raised. Who is at the right hand of the God who also intercedes for us. Where Christ is right now, He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. And we come in a conditional statement. If you indeed continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. You must remain firm and steadfast in your faith. Now this is not necessarily Paul expressing doubt they won't do that. Because in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, he says even though he's absent in body, nevertheless he's with them in spirit and rejoicing to see their good discipline and their stability and their faith in Christ. But here's the point he is making. Remaining faithful is the test of reality. You can say you have faith all day long, but it's not until you test it that we see if your faith is real. Consider, you, consider the, the words of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, he starts describing what the end times will look like. Famines, earthquakes, wars, rumor wars, and so on and so forth. But in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 24, he says this, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But the one who endures to the end. There are three things Three responses that people make when there's persecution. I'm not talking about the persecution we're seeing here in America. I'm talking about people dying, people being tortured or arrested for their faith. But as you look out through Christian history, you'll find these three responses. Number one, some will just reject their faith altogether. No, I don't believe, and they'll walk away. Some people will say, you know what? I'll say what they want me to say. I'll kind of compromise. Just kind of get along. I don't I won't cause any waves. I don't want to get in trouble, lose my job, or my family be hurt. So I'll, I'll say this and do this, but I don't really believe it. They, they compromise. Or the third option you see, people even become more steadfast in their faith 
and stand firm and sometimes die, give their life because they refuse to compromise their faith in Christ. You see that all through history. Dearly beloved, I say this without... I don't say this flippantly or without sincerity in my heart, but we are headed towards a time we're going to have to decide. Who are we going to side with? Are we with God? Are we pose to God? There is no middle ground. I believe I made this illustration before. Remember, every illustration breaks down. There was a movie years ago called The Karate Kid. Perhaps you've seen it. And this older gentleman is teaching this young man about karate. And he, he comes to this point in the movie where he says, Daniel's son, you walk on the left side of the road, you're okay. You walk on the right side of the road, you're okay. Or walk down the middle of the road, squish, just like grape. You know what's wrong with the American church? We've walked right down the middle of the road, and we're getting squashed. You can't have one foot in faith and one foot in the world. It does not work. We have to stand firm in our faith. When those hard times come, when those storms come, we have to stand firm. How do you do that? Look around you. This is your, your family, your church family. Because in here, we're all connected. And what connects us in here is much more stronger. It, it doesn't even compare. Because what ties us together is the blood of Christ. That means when all of us weep, we weep together. One of us rejoices, we rejoice together. We walk through life together. Lifting each up in prayer, holding each other accountable, but together. Christianity was never meant to be lived in isolation. It's meant to live in community. Firmly established or granted and steadfast or unwavering or resolute. In Christian community... And New Testament always seems to be portrayed as a holy building of God. Therefore, the metaphors of strength and security are used here. Jesus Christ Himself is the sure foundation of the church, the rock. This is what He's saying is needed during times of discouragement and stress. And I can say anything about 2020. It's been a year of discouragement and stress. It goes on to say, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Don't move away. Don't shift away. Don't be removed. He's calling them not to move away from the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. And at this point, he's not meaning that every individual has heard the gospel, but the gospel they're hearing is the same gospel being proclaimed all around the world. Wherever the gospel is preached, it's this gospel which has been proclaimed. There is no other. The message has been the same for 2,000 plus years. It may be talked about in different ways or different illustrations used depending on the context in which you find yourself, but the message is always the same. Jesus came, the only Son of God. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He laid His life down on the cross, was buried three days later. He resurrected, and then He ascended back into heaven. That's the gospel. 
That is the basis of our faith. And what I like at the end, which we kind of kind of overgloss sometimes, look, he makes this point of saying, in which I, Paul, was a minister. What? Well, well, yeah, you're writing this letter to us, Paul. We know this. But consider this. That word in the Greek that's translated servant, I mean, minister is literally means servant. That means to minister means to serve. His ministry is closely bound up with God's gracious plan. And what Paul is stressing here, him of all people was called to be a minister, servant of this gospel to the people. Remember Paul's pre-conversion life? He, he went out seeking these people out. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And Paul, in writing this letter, must have took a time back and said, I can't believe of all the people God could have chosen and used, he picked me. And right now, some of you, you're feeling God kind of tapping you on the shoulder. Maybe do something a little different. Step out of your comfort zone. You're thinking, of all people, God, why are you choosing me? Well, he doesn't look for the best looking. I mean, look at me. doesn't choose the smartest or the wisest. He looks for people who are willing to be obedient and faithful. He does his most extraordinary work with ordinary people. People that the world looks at and goes, hi, what could he possibly do? Look at the disciples. Fishermen. Lowly fishermen. They literally turned the world upside down for the cause of Christ without the internet, without the telephone, without modern transportation. And the message never wavered. Even when they went to their death, they never changed their story. Not one single time. You look out through history, thousands upon thousands of people who have died, and their story has never, never changed. We need, or we could say, we must be reminded of our past before we came to Christ. We really remember that we were enemies of God, alienated from Him and His people. And that gravity of our situation reminds us of God's gracious and mighty act. Reconciling you and I to Himself through the death of His Son. The goal is to present you and I holy, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Remaining faithful is a test of reality of our faith. We must remain true to the Gospel. Do not move away from it. Do not shift from the fixed ground of your faith and hope. If we do that, if we shift away from the firm foundation of Christ, we'll be just like that memorial arch we saw just a minute ago. Oh yeah, we'll have it all together on the outside. But there will be no firm foundation. So when that earthquake hits our lives, we'll crumble. That doesn't mean you don't have doubts and you walk through not struggling, but it means that you hang on. Often I feel like this, my personal life, I get to the point, okay, God, I, I, I thought I heard you clearly. Here I am. What's going on? I don't understand. And I feel like the disciples, when He turned to the disciples and said, are you going to turn away from Me like everybody else did? And they said, where else can we go? Who else has the answer to life but only you?
And sometimes that's what keeps me going. If He's not the answer, then what? I've been around a little bit. I know what the world offers. And let me tell you, the world offers is nothing but a facade of fake. Oh, it looks good on the outside. But in the inside, there's nothing there to sustain it. And in the end, it will crumble. There's a hymn. You pull out your hymnal. You grab one. I want to end with this. I believe it's page 406. It's a hymn number. How fitting the title, The Solid Rock. I'm not going to sing it. That's a good point though, isn't it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We have the Word telling us. We have this hymn that was written because the hymn writer was convinced of who Christ is. So my question to you and to me this morning, behind all the masks that we wear and all the words that we use, What are we putting down? What are we really building upon? What is it that we trust more than anything else? If you trust the government, well, good luck with that. There's only one person, one being, that you can truly trust and depend upon. He will never let you down. No matter how many times you mess up, if you come with repentance in your heart and confess it, He will forgive you. And that sin is far away from you, as far as the east is from the west. In other words, it never comes back. He loves you so much that even now He is calling you to His side. Regardless of what you think of yourself, He sees you as a most precious creation. There's no length at which He will not go to reach out to you. But here it is. He will not force you or coerce you in any way. You have to come of your own free will. But if you come, He will welcome you with open arms. Perhaps you've done that. I would tell you that every day God is calling us into a deeper walk with Him. What is it God's calling you to do? I say it once, I'll say it a million times. God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. Or perhaps He's calling you here to join us at this local body of believers known as Forestburg Baptist Church. Or perhaps... You're carrying a heavy burden. What does Jesus say? 
Come to me all that are heavy laden and I shall give you rest. He's here. Quit pulling that weight around. Give it to Him. He can take it. He's Lord of all. And let you experience that peace that passes all understanding. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the greatest gift of all, Your Son. We praise You tonight, this afternoon. Thank You for our salvation. That nothing can take us out of Your hands. It's built upon the firm foundation of Your Son. And Father, I pray for those gathered here and those who are joining on us via the internet that if there's anything they need to do, perhaps to pray, to come to You, to give their lives to You, perhaps answering a call to go deeper, or perhaps just laying down a load of cares and worries. Father, You knock down every wall. You break every chain that is necessary. Continue to speak to us, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.